you know, here was this guy who people said, well, he was a he was a reporter and a cop and now he's a cantor. When I look back on it, everything that I've done in my life, all of those three jobs and the other smaller jobs in between have always been about doing things with people, for people, right? I, I mean, I'm not a, it's not a sit at a desk kind of job. It is something where I'm out there with people and I'm helping them in some way. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. Few can tell a personal career story as dramatic and ever-changing as Michael Shockett. After college graduation, he became one of the youngest TV reporters in Baltimore before pivoting to work as a police officer. But Shockett was hardly settled on patrolling the streets of one of America's most dangerous cities. In this second part of a two-part episode, we begin with a retelling of the most traumatic event in this Baltimore City police officer's life. The event Shockett describes upended him, changed his career path again, and led him to meaningful work that helps others as much as it feeds his soul. We spoke to Michael Shockett in June 2018. So I want, to ta- I want you to take us to a kind of a red letter event in your life. It's uh, the summer of 1987, I believe August. Uh, were you on an evening shift, an overnight shift? I was on a midnight shift. Midnight shift. Right, and it was just the end of the midnight shift. It was around quarter of eight in the morning, just when we were getting ready to be called in to, yeah. to switch over to the next shift. I was sitting in a parking lot somewhere waiting for the, those that radio call to say, come on in. And uh, the tones came out on the radio for a signal 13. Signal 13 meant an officer needs help. The call was that an off-duty sergeant had been involved in something, was calling for help because he had spotted a man with a gun. And this was in either my patrol area or somewhere close to my patrol area. So myself and all of my squad mates, I was solo in the car, I believe, but all the rest of us, we all went to this area where was on Chase Street in Baltimore City. I remember that, even though it was how many years ago. And we found the off-duty officer, and he said that he was, that this guy in a car, suspect in a car, rolled down a window, pointed a gun at him, and took off. And he chased on foot this car and lost him kind of in the projects in Baltimore. And he gave us a description. We found the car. It was, it was abandoned. So we knew that the guy had run into this area, this particular projects. And myself and my squad mates, we took up positions to go house to house to do a search for this guy. I had the shotgun. Um, There were three of my other officer or two officers from my squad and one sergeant that were going house to house, knocking on the doors. And I was in the position of being a cover officer, which means I was back about, you know, 10 feet or so and was kind of watching and monitoring. And we would knock on doors, and this housing project was starting to be under construction, so some people weren't living there anymore. Some people were. And we got to this one house, and this elderly guy answers the door, kind of pokes his head out of the screen door, and he says, what's going on, officers? And one of my buddies, Tom, he said, he was the lead officer, and he said, uh, we're looking for this particular suspect, gives a description, and the uh, the guy at the door says, no, I don't, I don't know anything about that. And that. Just at that moment, on the radio, the license plate of the car came back to us. 
and we heard that the license plate was registered to the house that we were actually standing in. Oh, my goodness. That's a clue that something is amiss. And so we, Tom changed his whole demeanor and his attitude, and he said, okay, tell me what's going on. Is this your car? Yes, it's my car. This was the car involved in in, uh, this particular incident. Do you know this person who was driving? And he ultimately said, yes, this is my son. He's been in Vietnam. He was, uh, he's got some you know, mental health issues, and I've handled him before, and he'll be fine. He's in the house. I'll take care of it. And Tom said, no, you won't. And Tom grabbed the screen door to open it up. And as he did that, the suspect was on the other side of the door, turned around, and shot, fired at Tom. Tom seized the weapon. It was, this all happened in an instant. Tom seized the weapon and turns to run away from the door, and so when the suspect fired, he hit Tom in the back of the shoulder, at the upper part of the shoulder, right above where the kind of police vest covers. And Tom, you know, the shots ring out. One of the officers on the, or both officers actually fire into the house, but, you know, neither hit anybody. Somebody's on the radio, shots fired, officer, you know, down. Tom is screaming and running. I've been shot. I've been shot. My first inclination was to point my shotgun at the direction of the of where the bullet where the shooting came but I did not have a vision of the suspect he mm-hmm. was he had shot from inside the house there was a brick wall kind of between me and him so I didn't have a target so instead I grabbed Tom and helped him we ran down the sidewalk and around tried to get him out of any kind of further line of fire where he ended up ultimately collapsing at the end of the building other officers took up positions ultimately to talk him out, and I stayed with Tom to get him help. And I remember taking off my shirt to put that over the wound, over his where he was bleeding, to try and talk to him to keep him from going into shock. I don't know how long it took for paramedics to get there. It seemed like an eternity. Sure. And I'm sure it was on the radio a few times saying, when are the paramedics coming? When are the paramedics coming? And and I was with him my, you know, alone for, for a good bit of time until they could get to us. The other officers ended up talking the guy out. They arrested him, and, and no one else got hurt. Tom ended up being transported to Hopkins. We were in Our patrol area was right by Johns Hopkins Emergency Room, so we were very close. He went to Hopkins, and he was in the hospital for about a week. He, the bullet luckily didn't do any major damage, but it was a hugely traumatic event for all of us, obviously Tom, but all of us involved. Well, I remember being on the scene, you know, this was before cell phones, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the news crews are going to come. My mother and father are going to hear this on the morning news, right? And I need to get word that I'm okay. And so after Tom was taken by the ambulance, I ended up going to a, a house, a neighbor's house, and I said, you know, can I use your phone? And I called home and I said, just want to let you know I'm okay, but Tom's been shot. Hope he's okay, but you're going to hear this on the news and just want to let you know that, that I'm okay. You know, we went down to the hospital, and then we were with him, and then we were taken to homicide, and we were in homicide for all afternoon. You know, meanwhile, we were just—we were on midnight shift, right? So, You're exhausted. I was exhausted. We were writing reports and being interviewed, and, you know, I don't remember exactly what they said, but it was something to the effect of, you know, you can have the next day off, and then we'll see you back at work. And that was it. And there was no support for any of us. It was really, you know, man up, and uh, this is what happens. You're a big boy now. You're in Baltimore, and good luck to you. That was a turning point in my life. 
for what you know now, for all your life experience, looking back then, were you suffering PTSD? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And for those who don't know what that's like, can you describe some of what you were feeling, some of the, what your body felt like, what your brain felt like? Well, there are two different sets of reactions. So there's the immediate reactions, right, um, where you're anybody involved in a crisis event, a traumatic event would understand this, that, you know, you have things like um, narrowing of vision, you know, uh, things look like they're in slow motion, those kinds of events, you know, the elevated heart rate and, and, and everything is geared for survival at that moment of mm -hmm. the shooting. It gets imprinted in your brain. So here we are 30 years later, and I vividly see what happened in that scene. I, I can play that back in my head. Meantime, I have no idea what I had for breakfast this morning. Right. Right. So those kinds of traumatic events, they get implanted in your brain. And then for, I don't know how long, I'm months, maybe even years, I could hear the shots in when I would go to sleep at night and close my eyes and think about that, I could hear the shots in my head. And whenever I was, for many years, whenever I would hear a backfire or hear a shot or something, it would cause me to have a reaction that was probably abnormal that most people didn't have. So Baltimore police said, take a day off, man up, come back, get back on the job. Right. Were you able to? Well, I did because I had to, you know, I, was, I couldn't, I could not. But, and this was, you know, around August or so that happened. It was, it took me till about October to ultimately make a decision that I needed a change. I needed to get out of patrol and I wanted to go into public information like I was supposed to. I'd been on the street for a year. The commissioner said, you know, he would get me into public information, but here's what happened because the stars were not aligned for me. So okay. the commissioner, well, uh, Mayor, um, Mayor Donald Schaefer became governor Donald Schaefer during that time and took with him the commissioner of the Baltimore City Police Department to become the head of public safety for the state of Maryland. So now I was a patrol officer, no longer a TV reporter. There was a new police commissioner who mm -hmm. didn't really know me. You had no agency with. Yeah. And I had the only thing that I could do was put in a request to transfer to public information, but there was no opening at that time. So they said to me, you know, you're, you have to stay in patrol. There's no movement for you at this point. So I decided to quit. You know, it was just too difficult. There were too many pressures, not only the pressure from the crisis event, but the crisis event caused people in my life to say, why are you doing this? Get out of this job. Right. We don't want you to get hurt. And in fact, it was scary to be on the street. I remember, I think it was after the shooting where I was involved in a, I was chasing somebody and I had no clue of where I was. You know, and that's the most dangerous thing. I ran out of my patrol car with chasing somebody for, I think it was a drug charge, chased him down a, you know, a dark alley, totally lost him. You know, I couldn't keep up with him. And I had no idea where I was. And I'm on the radio and trying to get help. And as a patrolman, you're supposed to know where you are. Absolutely, all at all times. Right. Yeah. And it was just one of those things that happened. And I said, you know, this is too crazy. I, I, I really enjoyed being a police officer. Don't get me wrong. Until you didn't. <laughs> uh, well, until that happened. But it was too difficult. The enjoyment of helping someone was overshadowed by the trauma, the trauma that I sent, that I faced from this shooting. What happened to Tom? Did he go back to Tom went back to work. He went back on the street. He was a very aggressive police officer. He liked to jump in and mm. get his hands dirty. Yeah. And uh, I was with a squad that was, it was a weird squad. So this one officer who I thought was a model patrol officer, he was on the street about four years when I knew him. And 
I actually did a, poli- a story about him when I was a news reporter, and so I have a story about him when he was four years on the street and what he was like. And he was already showing signs of frustration with the department, with the judicial system, and mm-hmm. all of that. And it turns out, about 14 years later, in 2000, he had become a lieutenant, and he was arrested by the FBI for robbing banks while he was on duty as a Baltimore oh, City police lieutenant. Oh. Yeah. So, and then one of my lieutenant uh, from my squad ended up being killed in a domestic call that he handled. He went up on the scene of a call and somebody shot him as soon as he got up to the door. So, you know, I was with a squad that ultimately it was just, uh, it was surreal. It was surreal. So walk us through the next transition, which became your your home, so to speak, the clergy. How, how did you transition from police work to becoming a member of the clergy? So as I mentioned, growing up in my synagogue was something that was um, regular for me. It was very important to me. Uh, I believe that I had always been connected to my Judaism in a way that as a congregant, but then also as someone who really needed, I really leaned on my Judaism to help me through these times in the police department. I started a choir at my synagogue, because I was, as I told you, I was really interested in music. And I started a choir, and I would come to choir rehearsals in my police uniform after my shift and direct the choir. So I was always involved in my synagogue, and I became a lay leader on our temple board. And when I was trying to de- decide what to do with my life, I went back to my rabbi, and he said, look, he said, what makes you happiest is what you do at the synagogue. Yes, you've been a police officer, you do- you've done this, now you're not sure if you want to do this anymore, but what really connects you and makes you whole is what you do at the synagogue. Why don't you consider being a rabbi or a cantor? Well, I didn't see myself as being a rabbi because my rabbi was so scholarly, so intellectual, that I did not see myself in that light. And as I mentioned, I was really a creative person. Music was my connection to Judaism. And so I decided to seek out what it might might be like to be a cantor and did more and more in the music world in Judaism in Baltimore. I sought out a ordained cantor uh, at another synagogue in Baltimore, and he took me under his wing. And Meantime, as I was still, I was still a patrol officer, but then I decided when I quit, I went back to television, worked in television, back on the air, and uh, back at WJZ, not MAR anymore, but WJZ, the Channel 13, I was back working there, subbing, Simon Editor, and things like that, and then I ended up getting a job uh, in a private company called the Insurance Information Institute, which was a public relations arm of the property and casualty insurance industry and their job was to create videos they they had me start they hired me to start a video news bureau to do news stories about property and casualty insurance so did that went to places like hurricanes and stuff like that and you know did news reports that ended up getting satellited to television stations around the country that didn't have the ability to um, cover those events so you, so you went back so you went back to your dream station WJC. Right, but not on the air. But as a substitute. Right, not on the air, though. I was doing assignment writing work and, and so Yeah, because that's all they had at and, that time. And you got this corporate gig. But right, I got a, And also, I, I also got a job. I can't remember which order, whether it was... I, I think my first job, actually, uh, out of the police department was for the U.S. Information Agency, World oh. Net Television. They don't have it anymore, but they, they used to do a daily news show that would be broadcast to everywhere around the world except for the United States. And so it's it, like Voice of America, but in video form. Exactly. It was the video side of Voice of America. And they hired me to be a reporter 
and it was I was worked in the newsroom, and we would basically cover. I covered Washington news stories, so I covered political stories, repackaged ABC news stories, and you know I had family in Israel, and they would they could see me, but really? my family here in you know in the United States couldn't. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that, and then Congress canceled our show, so I ended up losing my job because everyone got laid off. Uh, they they got rid of the television arm, and then that's when I went to the Insurance Information Institute. And, you know, meantime, I was still thinking about what it would be like to go into the clergy, but I was not a professional musician. To be a cantor, you have to be able to sing. That's a really, it's an important requirement of the job. So it took me a couple years, I guess it was two years total, that I started thinking about it, started taking music lessons and voice lessons, and, and I decided to apply to the cantorial school and said, okay, been a television reporter, been a police officer, and okay, now you're number in, three. Now you're in cantorial school with no formal musical training. Exactly. Most of the people in cantorial There's school. There's a theme going on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Most of the people in cantorial school had a degree in music. I did not. I ended up with a master's degree in music without a bachelor's degree in music. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did well in cantorial school. It was it was a challenge. It's four. It was four years at the time. First year was in Israel, and then three years in New York City. I was I got married early on, and so I was my wife and I went to Israel together in cantorial school. And you know, here was this guy who people said, "Well, he was a he was a reporter and a cop, and now he's a cantor." When I look back on it, everything that I've done in my life, all of those three jobs and the other smaller jobs in between, have always been about doing things with people for people. Right. I, I mean, I'm not a it's not a sit at a desk kind of job. It is something where I'm out there with people and I'm helping them in some way. You know, as a television reporter, I was reporting on the news. I was giving information as a police officer. I was right in where the things were happening, right, where the stories were happening. And I was helping people that way. And as a cantor, I saw myself in the pastoral. And it wasn't so much about the music was my instrument, but it wasn't the music that I was looking for. It was the ability to be a pastoral presence. ordained in 1994 in New York City, and my first congregation was down in New Orleans. I was uh, the cantor, the, the first cantor of a historic congregation, Temple Sinai of New Orleans. Oh my goodness. And now you're the cantor of Temple Rodef Shalom in Falls Church, Virginia, which is in Northern Virginia, one of the largest uh, reform congregations in the area, I believe, right? It's the largest reform congregation in Virginia, and it's the second largest in the D.C. area of all the, all the congregations. 
1,700 families. It's a huge congregation. Uh, we have five clergy. I'm the senior cantor. I've been here 20 years now. And my cantorate has evolved, so it's not about solely music. And most people don't know what a cantor is, so let me tell you what a cantor Please, is. <laughs> for our audience, most of whom are probably not as familiar with Judaism, yeah. what does a cantor do, and how is it different from a rabbi? So I like to, I liken it this way. If you go into a doctor's office, and maybe you have an internist and a gastroenterologist and a urologist, and all three are there to help you uh, to, to deal with the, you know, the, the physiological parts of your body, but they all have specialties. The rabbi and cantor are similarly set up to be there for your spiritual life, but with specialties. So my specialty, obviously, is music and liturgy. I help you know, lead the music and lead the liturgy of our services. I run our bar and bat mitzvah program where we're training uh, our young people, 13 years old, mm-hmm. to kind of lead services that's what I do. That's my specialty, that, that area. But where I intersect with the rabbis, since we're all co-clergy here, is in the pastoral realm. So I counsel people. I do conversions. I do weddings and bar mitzvahs and funerals and baby namings and bris ceremonies. I go to the hospital and visit people. All of that, which is what the rabbi does too, we all share. So there are five clergy here two cantors and three rabbis, and we all do all of that. We're all, each of us is on call every week to minister to the needs of our congregants. We all, you know, do funerals, whether together or, you know, individually. So we're all ministering to the needs of our congregation, but my specialty is in music. So when it comes to the music of our worship life, whether it comes to the music of our cultural life and concerts and things like that, that's what, what I oversee. But what really connects me as a clergy person is the work I do as a pastoral presence. And so when I was first in New Orleans, after about two years of learning about being a clergy, I knew that there were chaplains in law enforcement, but I didn't know much about what that meant. But I contacted the police chaplain of the New Orleans Police Department, the head chaplain. He was a Methodist minister. And I said, you know, here I am. I was a police officer in Baltimore City. I'm now a pastoral clergy person. I really would love to learn about chaplaincy, police chaplaincy. Can I do that? And he took me under his wing, and he brought me in as a chaplain. And the the night that the first day I was sworn in as a police chaplain by the police commissioner in New Orleans, that night a police officer was killed in New Orleans, and I was called by the head chaplain to come and join him at the hospital and help minister to the families. And at that moment, I realized, wow, this is something where I can bring together my background as a police officer. I've been there. I've been at a shooting. I know what that's like for right. these officers. And I could, I can help them. I can hold their hand. I can do for them what was not done for me. So did that lead you to becoming a chaplain in Fairfax County, Virginia? Yes. So when I left New Orleans to come up here, you know, decided to move up here for a different position, and I came here as the first cantor, and immediately I sought out the head chaplain for Fairfax County Police, and I worked with him, became a chaplain, uh, and now the whole the whole chaplaincy kind of changed over, this was back in, you know, 1998 when I came here. Chaplains were mostly ceremonial in departments. You know, we did benedictions and invocations at graduations right. Right. or events, things like that, but we weren't really, when I say we, meaning the chaplaincy corps in the in the country weren't doing a lot of pastoral work. We were doing some, and there were organizations that were starting to train chaplains to actually do uh, critical incident work, and that's what I started learning about. 
I got involved with the International Conference of Police Chaplains and got trained in police chaplaincy as a critical incident responder and ultimately became that for Fairfax County. And so um, after it was about six or seven years, I became the head of the chaplaincy program in Fairfax County, which is what I do now. And we respond to any officer that is in need uh, because he or she has been involved in a critical incident. We're there to be a presence for them, to know that there is calm on the other side of chaos, to know that there's someone thinking about them and, and wanting to help them. And then in certain cases, we actually will have crisis counseling with officers or family members. And I also do that for the community. So an ex- for example, because Fairfax County is not a, you know, a place where a lot of officers are getting hurt. Um, we're a pretty safe county. In my years here, there have been four officers that have been killed in the line of duty, uh, which is over a 20-year period. It's still sad, but it's, um, it's not that we're doing this a lot. But when a police officer goes to the scene of someone, say a suicide, and they get to the scene and they're dealing with a, the family, a citizens who are dealing with a tragic death, they might say, can we call someone for you? Can we call our chaplain for you? So I might get a call to go out to minister to the needs of a family member because they are in a crisis. And what I do in that case, or what any of the chaplains do, is we become a pastoral band-aid, right? We become a way to bridge the crisis event until their normal support systems and resources can get into place, you know, till their minister can get there, or their pastor, or their neighbor, or whoever it is that's going to help them. So we're there, you know, at that crisis moment. We make death notifications. I can't tell you how many death notifications I've made, um, too many, to, you know, a family that their whole world is shocked and turned around when I knock at the door. I remember the worst ever was a family here in the McLean area where the mother that we were going to notify had just lost her son and her father in a car crash in another state. And we, Fairfax County Police, had to notify this mother that her son and her father were just killed. And, you know, he was a uh, 11th grader in high school, and it was just a, a terribly, terribly tragic event. And I we had to make that notification and help them through those moments. And that was a very complicated notification because there were other people we had to notify. Turns out she was Jewish, and so I didn't know that. But I was able to then, in addition to being a police chaplain where I kind of bring a universal sense of pastoral help to someone, right. I was also able to help her from a Jewish perspective too. We're going to get more into uh, your work as a member of the clergy relating to and aiding members of law enforcement in a future segment. But I wanted to kind of get back to this idea of dreams. And when you were a young kid, eight and nine, thinking about, you know, the nobility of what your dad did, the fun that your mom did as an interior designer, the ambitions that took you into being a communicator, an on-air reporter, and then uh, a beat cop, and then a member of the clergy. And I guess my question to you is, how close have you come to the happiness that you felt as an eight or nine-year-old kid? That's a great question. I feel like I am happiest when I am making a difference in someone's life. And whether it's being in a patrol car and thinking back to when I was eight or nine and, you know, my first experience with a patrol car, and here I am now driving a patrol car, it is an amazing feeling. It really is. I mean, I I feel blessed that I've had the ability in my life, and I'm, you know, 56 years old, so mm-hmm. I'm, not that, I'm not that old, although I, when I was 20, I thought I was going to I was old when I was 56, right? <laughs> but 
in terms of my life to have this opportunity to do what I love to do in three or four different areas Mm -hmm. of professions or three or four different professions that people can only dream about. I, I feel so lucky and blessed to have have been able to be a police officer, to be a television reporter, and now to be a cantor. And the lives that I've helped shape, the lives that I've brought comfort to, now through my singing or through my pastoral presence, uh, when I was a police officer helping people in need, and when I was a television reporter, you know, also bringing information to people, I just feel like I'm living in a in a world where I am just so thankful that I have able to, been able to fulfill these dreams. And, you know, I look back, the fact that eight or nine years old and my first encounter with a police officer was such a positive experience that led me to have this life where my life now revolves around law enforcement. You know, I'm a cantor. That's what I get paid to do. I am a clergy member of this, you know, great congregation, but I volunteer for the police department. And that brings me a sense of wholeness that is so important. I look at my walls, you can look at my walls and you see, you know, some of the accolades that are on my walls and it, most of them have to do with law enforcement. And I have the, the patch on my certificate when I became a police officer uh, in Baltimore City. That patch mm-hmm. was uh, when I was involved in the shooting of Tom and I, that was the shirt that I wrapped around him to stop the bleeding and I ended mm-hmm. up taking that patch with me and that's been on my wall ever since. One last question I wanted to ask about career transitions. And so for some of our listeners thinking about changing careers out of maybe something that they don't feel purposed or don't feel joyful about, they're not getting a sense of meaning that that enriches them. How would you counsel somebody to be brave enough and take the step to get out of something that maybe has become meaningless into something that can be meaningful? I would say to someone who is really feeling burnt out in their profession that you need to realize that you have one life to live and you want to be happy. You want to live it to its fullest. And so what's holding you back from making that change? Is it because you're scared of starting over? Well, I've been there and it's not easy. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it means a huge pay cut. Sometimes it means uh, trying to rethink the values and things like that in your life. But I think that I would say to anybody, you know, live your dreams and do what makes you happy because you only have that one life to live and look back at your life and say, wow, I did what I wanted to do. I am thankful. I am blessed. I am happy that I lived the life that I was proud of. Well, thank you, Cantor Michael Shockett, for being on the tightrope. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Michael Shockett's career story is dramatic. Few of us experienced three career pivots before we're 28 years old. But the story he tells gives us all hope that we can do the work of our dreams, meaningful work. Check out past episodes on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Denise, who writes that the episode she listened to resonated on many levels. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Denise. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list by visiting dansmolin.com. And please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin. And do remember this. 
our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone.